afternoon. My name is Jason Staniak, and I am the Tutorial Fellow in Ethnomusicology at St. John's College. I'm here to welcome you to a lecture being offered through the Humanitas program, a series of visiting professorships at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, intended to bring leading practitioners and scholars to both universities to address major themes in the arts, social sciences, and the humanities. Created by Lord Weidenfeld, the program is managed and funded by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue with the support of a series of generous benefactors and administered by the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities. St. John's College has the enormous privilege to host a Humanitas Professorship in Classical Music and Music Education a chair made possible by the generous support of Mick Davis. So very quickly before I introduce our guests for this afternoon, tomorrow we will have a symposium following on the theme of today's lecture. And the title of tomorrow's symposium will be some, uh, Performance, Interpretation, or Identification. And we'll be sitting at that table. It will be Imogen Cooper, myself, and Eric Clark, the head of professor of music at the Faculty of Music here at Oxford, and the actor Simon Callow. Um, so that will take place at 5 p.m. tomorrow. And after the lecture this afternoon, we will have a reception just across the, um, the way in the reception area. Oh. This year's chair in classical music and mu music education, the inaugural chair, I might add, is held by Imogen Cooper, one of the premier concert pianists working today. Imogen has had a widespread international career and has appeared with many of the world's top orchestras, the New York Philharmonic, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, the Royal Concertgebouw, Leipzig, Leipzig Gewandhaus, the London Philharmonic. She has performed under the baton of elite conductors such as Christoph Eschenbach, Sir Simon Rattle, and Sir Colin Davis. She has given solo recitals in the most prestigious concert halls on the international circuit. Her recordings are numerous and varied. With the cellist Sonia Vider Atherton, she has recorded works by Rachmaninoff, Foire, Franck, and Schubert for BMG France. With the baritone Wolfgang Holzmeier, she has recorded, again among others, Schubert's Schwanengesang and Winterreise, Schumann's Heinerlieder, a selection of lieder and songs by Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. Her solo discography includes, again among other CDs, six CDs of the piano works of Schubert's last six years. A few months ago, this past February, St. John's was fortunate to host Imogen for the first part of her professorship, during which she played an astonishing concert of Schubert's 
solo piano music, and gave an absolutely spellbinding masterclass. Both events took place in this very auditorium. In the lead up to her arrival in February, I believe I had a Google alert set to her name so I wouldn't miss any current Imogen Cooper news. I came across a review of a performance she gave with the Philadelphia Orchestra in January of this year. The performance was of Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 24 in C minor, K491, and Imogen not only played the solo part, but also conducted from the keyboard. The critic Peter Dobrin, writing in the Philadelphia Inquirer, had this to say. Conductors are a relatively modern invention, especially the breed of whom celebrity is expected. And for this one program, the orchestra constructed a concert that asked musicians to find leadership elsewhere. In Imogen Cooper, they found it in spades. The pianist exercised mysterious powers from the keyboard. Mozart's C minor piano concerto glowed with a point of view of such spell-blinding beauty that we probably won't hear its likes again anytime soon. I felt similarly about the all Schubert recital Imogen gave here on February 2nd. This might sound blasphemous, but in the spirit of full honesty, and as I told Imogen over dinner later, I've never been Schubert's greatest admirer. I'm much more of a Schumann man. But Imogen's performance revealed nuances of the music that I had never noticed. I was absolutely overwhelmed. Why hadn't I heard, heard those things in Schubert before. But clearly, this is what the great performers do. They give us new ears. Imogen's Schubert was revelatory, yes, but I was just as mesmerized by the masterclass she gave the following morning. We heard four young performers from four different Oxford colleges playing Beethoven, Brahms, and Chopin. The chair that Imogen holds is indeed the Humanitas Visiting Professorship of Classical Music and Music Education. And at the masterclass, she showed herself to be a world-class educator. The session went on for the better part of three hours, and Imogen offered up a large number of pedagogical pearls. But two comments in particular have stayed with me. In reference to a hesitant start, to one student's performance of Chopin's second ballade. Miss, Miss uh, Imogen said, begin with no preparation, like you're joining an eternal music. And to another student playing Beethoven's Pastoral Sonata, she said, it's destabilization time, time to rethink all of your theories. Destabilize yourself and us do it unpredictably. I juxtapose these two comments, join in eternal music and destabilization time, to make a point about the profundity of Imogen's musical, musicality. For me, this is what she does in her performances and not incidentally in her pedagogy. She helps us join with an eternal music, but she also destabilizes that music, giving us new ears, with which to hear pieces we may have heard many, many times. I like the word destabilize. It implies change and the addition of new perspectives without being as iconoclastic as some of its de 
prefix brethren, destroy, destruct, decimate. Words that don't leave their objects intact. Destabilize holds out a certain kind of hope for both continuity and change. So, it's destabilization time. For her lecture today, Imogen has chosen to include in her title what is perhaps the most fecund of all the prefixes, re. The title of her talk is The Hidden Power of the Recreative Process in Music. Please join me in welcoming Imogen Cooper. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Jason, for a really very gracious introduction. I'm honoured to be standing here in a role so different from my usual sedentary one, <laughs> but a role that is, believe you me, no less challenging. There have been numerous attempts to analyse the meaning of music and why it affects us so deeply. The late Anthony Storr, known no doubt to many of you, has written richly on this subject. And I would like to acknowledge, in admiration and friendship, his wonderful insights, which have been so illuminating for me in the writing of this lecture. His finely drawn line between music and Jungian psychotherapy opens the door to a rich discussion on this most elusive of subjects. My view, by choice as well as by necessity, is from a slightly different perspective. That of the performer, whose task and desire it is to capture an audience through music and take it on a journey similar to my own. It is inevitably a very personal view. One may be shared by other musicians, but not necessarily so, since the experience of performing can have many layers, as can the experience of listening. Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi eloquently observed, music cannot be expressed in words, not because it is vague, but because it is more precise than words. This makes my task today a challenging one. I'm here not to play, but to talk to you, and I'm therefore obliged to use language and to name that which is sometimes better not named. Naming can enrich meaning, but there is also a risk that it in fact provides a boundary to an understanding that is more instinctive. As such, doors can unintentionally be closed when the wish is to open them. However, to speak is my task, and I hope that you will allow me to have as my pedal note this enigmatic and contradictory state. To quote Felix Mendelssohn a little further, People often complain that music is too ambiguous, that what they should think when they hear it is so unclear, 
whereas everyone understands words. With me, it is exactly the opposite. And not only with regard to an entire speech, but also with individual words. These two seem to me so ambiguous, so vague, so easily misunderstood in comparison to genuine music which fills the soul with a thousand things better than words. The thoughts which are expressed to me by music that I love are not too indefinite to be put into words, but on the contrary, too definite. Some years ago, I played at the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires, a Schubert recital which was to be repeated the following evening. The gallery was allotted to under 25s, of which there were some 750. That would be a remarkable total audience, even in Central Europe, where Schubert is so familiar. After the recital, a young girl of about 17 came backstage, full of enthusiasm, and told me that she had never been to a piano recital before. She said, can I tell you what I heard? By all means, I said. She continued, I heard tenderness, terror, death, nature, love, humanity, darkness, light. How am I doing, she asked anxiously. <laughs> I reassured her that she was doing brilliantly, noting to myself that she was giving an extremely good description of Schubert's emotional world. This was to me an extraordinary example of great music lodging in the ears and heart of an unbiased, open, young listener. Her need to express her excitement at this novel experience led her into naming many emotional states and visions, and it was very moving that she wanted to share it with me. To her huge credit, she also told me that she would return the next evening, which she did. This story tells me that although the idiom of music is to a certain extent exclusive and elitist, possibly incomprehensible and daunting, daunting to the uninitiated, this is actually not wholly so. True, a discussion between a non-professional music lover and a practicing musician is inevitably somewhat of a three-legged race. Both hear the same sounds, but there is a gap in common language to discuss it adequately. And indeed, how can either know if they are hearing the same as the other? Words fall short here, too. Yet, in the case of the young girl at the Teatro Colón, it was clear to me that despite a difference between us of age and musical experience, she had felt and shared the essence of the music and had been capable of not only seeing into the heart of Schubert, but also into herself. The music of Schubert had acted as a mirror to her own inner world. It is this phenomenon that I would like to talk about today, the power that live music has 
to show us, performer and audience, our own inner world. It has in its wordlessness a force unlike any other performing art. This justifies investigation, if only to understand more clearly that to which we should pay attention, that which we should nurture, and that which we should safeguard. I would like to look more closely at what happens in a concert hall, not only for the performer, but also for the audience. There are, of course, many possible levels of reception within a given public. Some will integrate the music completely, some will receive it and store it away, some will be bemused, some will absorb it at a deep level and be moved but not have any idea of what it means, some will have their lives changed by it, some will be entertained, some will be taken back to the composer's suffering and struggle, some will be fascinated by the passion and commitment of the performer. Some will appreciate the technical mastery, some will compare with other performances. Some will count the number of seats and wonder if the hall makes a profit, and so on. However, my belief is that something profound links them all, acknowledged or not. Something that is more potent in a concert hall than through a recording. I suggest that when the muse is in full flow and the audience's deep attention is captured, more on this later, there is a silent inner process going on. It brings to mind Alexander Pope. True wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. Something whose truth convinced at sight we find that gives us back the image of our mind. What is the first thing that acts as a link between performer and audience? It is evident that the immediate experience of music happens through sound. Rhythm, emotion, pulse all follow after that which first hits the ear. My initial adult awareness of this was in the course of my first lesson with Alfred Brendel in Vienna when I was 20. I played him the Schubert A minor Sonata Deutsch 784 that I played here in early February. The first chord of the Andante second movement is a four note F major chord to be played in the lower area of the piano. It is the beginning of a rising phrase full of hope and softness after the uncompromising rigors of the first movement. I played my chord, confident that it has never been hard for me to produce a beautiful sound. No good. Brendel paced around the room, listening like a hawk, as I played the chord again and again. Wrong balance of sound, too much bass, too loud, too soft, too much treble, more right hand thumb needed, 
cord knocked together. That was the ultimate humiliation. And so on for 20 minutes. 20 minutes. I started hearing like him. Started listening as if I were in the audience. Started hearing how it was rather than how I wanted it to be. Small but important distinction. Hearing how much further I could go, how I could expand my palette of colors. At one point, and I knew he would before it happened, Brendel turned around and said, thank you. I had heard what he had heard, and it was right at last. <laughs> Then, God help me, I had to string it together with the next chord. <laughs> that was another story in at least another 20 minutes. It was one of the greatest learning curves of my weeks in Vienna to realize how immediate and therefore of vital importance sound production is. Of course, sound happens via the tool that makes it. For a pianist, this is complex and risky as our tools change at each venue. This factor is much underestimated by the general public. For all that we are used to adjusting to a piano shortly before a performance, or better still, if there is a good technician getting the piano to adjust to us. I ask you to imagine how it is to spend hours on your own instrument at home, fine-tuning your deepest and most intimate conception of a piece complete with imagined sound world, only to be confronted in the hall with a piano that makes this an almost impossibly uphill challenge. What is so fascinating is that it is possible. If the imagined sound world is potent enough and thought through comprehensibly away from the instrument, and if there is an innate gift to translate thought from the abstract to the keyboard without mental or physical hindrance between inner and outer world, then the audience can still benefit from something of that original inner vision, despite the limitations of the instrument. This suggests to me that there is another factor at work. If the less than perfect piano, um, and there are incidentally no perfect pianos, the box with felt, wire, and wooden innards cannot even in its imperfect state prevent one's visionary inner imaginings from coming to life, it surely takes more than simple technical skill, vital as that is, to explain this communication. Could it be something much deeper? Could it be a life force and a need to share it with others? Could it be exactly the same life force as that of the composer? Why not? His or her unique genius has lain in a rare ability to hear new sounds and write them down. But the force behind the desire to compose came first and must go further out and beyond ink and paper 
otherwise the sounds remain silent and imprisoned. I would not wish to imply that the creation would not have happened without the, the idea of a performance, or to underestimate the breathtaking genius behind such creation. But performances are needed to bring the sounds to life and to throw them out to the world. At this stage, many things can happen. At the very least, the notes are faithfully reproduced, the markings in the score by and large respected, the excitement of the physical live performance generated, the audience is hooked and stimulated, even entertained. It is already a lot, and a possibly world-weary, probably stressed audience can be grateful. However, if it is true that a composition can only fire into life if fueled by the same energies as those which fueled the composer, there can and should be another element too. Let us call it spiritual for want of a more neutral word. After all, neutral is precisely what we are not looking for. Is it arrogance to be so sure that the spiritual is shared between genius composer long dead and 21st century performer? One furthermore saturated with 21st century imprints like the internet, instant travel, speed, and how many more such wondrous but somewhat unnatural things. I do not believe it is arrogance to assume this link. The composer and the interpreter are part of a whole, and the gap of time between them is in no way relevant. Furthermore, I suggest that the need to compose and the need to perform publicly are also intertwined in their energies. It stems from the language of music having a quite extraordinary power to pinpoint and localize both the numinous and the dark shadow areas of the human soul and to give them voice. Such voicing brings wonder, pain, relief, performing a role that is quite uniquely cathartic. Great composers have needed catharsis no less than any of us to survive solitude, poverty, ill health, professional humiliation, social injustices. Beethoven and Schubert's lack of loving central relationships, Schubert's syphilis, Beethoven's total deafness. What was their solution? Apart from drinking, smoking, opium, and the occasional whorehouse. They worked. They went inside themselves and plucked sounds from their imagination to string together into magic and moving chains. Chains which told stories. The stories that were relevant to them 
and in turn speak to us. So what do we performers do all these years later when we feel destabilized, alienated, disenfranchised, uprooted, alone? We work. We go inside ourselves and pick up these chains which tell our story in turn. And through the magic of recreating, recreating these sounds, we survive. And better, we heal ourselves. It does not stop there. For the balm to have its full potency, these sounds must be shared. Of course, the work done alone, late at night with a burning candle in the silence of one's own home, is particular. But that work is but to strengthen and illuminate the structure on which the unique experience of a public performance must stand. It is in the public performance that the fire flares up, that the waters flow deep, that the light is blinding. It is intensely demanding on the performer, who is doing nothing less than bearing their soul time and time and time again. We will come back later as to why we choose to do this. But for me, one reason is that this surrendering to vulnerability has a mysteriously similar effect on the audience, without whom the whole process would not be complete. It maybe enables them to open themselves in a safe place and in like-minded company to that within them which they have maybe not been able to address elsewhere, perhaps through simple lack of time or even more simple lack of courage. In this way, there is a synergy between performer and audience, a circulating energy that benefits all concerned. Some, many, will not be fully aware of this. Some will even deny it. But it is undeniable and is there for all, even for those who close themselves to it. I would venture to go even further. If this energy is circular, then I, as an active ingredient in the circulation, have more than once had the feeling that our identification with the composer's suffering, longing, isolation, joy, and our need to voice and share these things through his language has led to a further, if not total, completion of the circle, whereby the composer finds a ghostly resolution by transcending time through the performer. For the performer, at least this one, the experience is tangible, definable, physically felt. During performance, there is a sensation that nothing can go awry, that you are being played rather than are playing. 
and that the audience has collectively merged with you in this experience of the numinous. In Anthony Storr's book, The School of Genius, he quotes Romain Roland, Le sentiment océanique, le fait simple et direct de la sensation de l'éternel, sans borne perceptible et comme océanique. In other words, the simple and straightforward sensation of the eternal, without perceptible boundaries, the oceanic. I was thrilled and surprised to read this. It had seemed like a private experience of my own for so many years. It is possible to feel when coming off the platform after such an experience that death would really be no tragedy. The best of that which is at the centre of human life has been seen and lived through. To what avail need one go on? I first was conscious of this on stage in my early 20s and nothing has marked me more. I would like to pause here so as to play you a recording that is particularly close to my heart. I'm not old enough to have met the pianist in question, but he was Brendel's teacher, so I heard a certain amount about him and of him through recordings during the time of my Viennese learning curve. He is the Swiss pianist Edwin Fischer. And I want you to listen to the slow movement of the Bach F minor keyboard concerto recorded with the Fischer Chamber Orchestra in 1938. I would ask you to suspend all views on style, on ornamentation, um, on extraneous additions or on Bach being played on a modern piano. This is not open to discussion in today's context. I would like you to hear the supremely eloquent and speaking musician. I have, of course, no right to retrospectively project onto him any of my own beliefs and analyses, but I do know that he was a person of great musical intuition and warmth, who spoke, I mean, of course, in the musical sense, from the heart, and affected those listening to or playing with him deeply. Not so many years ago, I heard of an elderly musician who had played in Fischer's orchestra and who, in talking of this Bach concert, said, all these years later, I cannot remember his playing without getting goose pimples. Thank you. 
ends on a question mark. To me, the freedom and simplicity of Fisher's expression is nothing less than inspirational. How wonderful also is the sound, no doubt a few microphones strung around, but none of the deathly precision of today's recording techniques, rather a preservation of that space vital for the sound to breathe. Here is a musician in complete communion with his fellow players, with the composer and in harmony also with himself. Is the desire to experience this uh, transcendence the main drive behind becoming a performer? Indeed, is this the holy grail for every musician? I'm not sure. Just because it is an intensely private matter and one that I personally have not talked about with any of my colleagues. Maybe it is just a matter of semantics we do certainly recognize amongst ourselves the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, that extraordinary moment in a concert when everything feels blessed and with a magic inevitability to it. But maybe the oceanic feeling, something even deeper, more elusive and precious, is so precisely at the center of what performing is about that we all take for granted that the quest to experience and share it is no more nor less than our life's work. Nothing to discuss. I think that the understanding of the route needed to deliver significantly great music making is also vital. Travelling along this route, after all, takes up many more hours of our waking life than the unpredictable moments of inspiration. And the journey in itself must have a deeply sustaining function to nurture us so well in the course of decades of preparing to walk on stage. 
It is, of course, not the glamorous life that some might imagine with a little gentle practicing before jumping onto a first-class intercontinental flight to be greeted in New York by a Giorgio Armani representative begging you to wear their latest creation at your Carnegie Hall recital. There is actually a price to be paid in terms of a somewhat dysfunctional life littered with sacrifices made from the delicious banality of those things called weekends uh, to the probability of wrecked personal relationships via constant travelling, flight delays, lost luggage with your concert outfit lost too, noisy hotel rooms, cold halls, bad pianos, difficult conductors, frayed nerves, and always the guilty drive to practice, 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 meaning that for a pianist, even holidays are complicated unless there is a good instrument to hand. This price is huge and defines the whole span of a lifetime, even if it is a conscious and willing choice. So why do we choose this route? Performing in itself is not just a love of music and a desire to share it, otherwise the much regretted and beautiful old habit of domestic music making would suffice us. The explanation sometimes proffered of needing to prove oneself publicly and overcome old ingrained insecurities by walking out onto a stage in front of thousands of people may have a role, but there are musicians who come from secure and nurturing homes, as well as there being those who do not, so this does not ring entirely true. To me, one strong reason is the benefit of identification with great repertoire, day in, day out. The intense identification with the particular emotional world of a given composer. I remember when I first read the child psychologist Bruno Bettelheim and his interpretation of fairy tales. I was struck by his conviction that children need to have read to them the very tales that help them subconsciously resolve any inner struggles that they may be having in the arduous process of growing up. I feel the same when I choose repertoire. I can only choose that which speaks to me, that to which I respond, that with which I need to identify, that which I need to express for my own well-being. I know then that it will be convincing to the listener because lived and felt through and through. There will be a far greater chance of being taken to the snowy heights than with a work learned and performed as part of a checklist or a notch on a totem pole. Such an attitude possibly does not endear me to managers for whom it is in general easier to sell packages or complete cycles than randomly chosen works, or at least that was the case before the present economic climate. But my programmes are actually never random, and I think audiences sense this better in concert than do promoters when they see a programme on the written page. In a recent recital tour, I lost a venue in the planning stage because the promoter could not countenance my programming the big Bach C minor partita 
at the end of the recital rather than at the beginning. So stuck was he in the old way of planning chronologically. I felt strongly that to end with the introverted and autumnal intermezzi Opus 117 by Brahms was a mistake. The audience would carry sorrow away with them. Whereas the magisterial and energetic partita would be life-giving for all of us. And so it was. It raised the roof. I somehow had had a sense of this before it happened on stage. I needed to not only play these works, but to sense the juxtaposition between them, the optimistic resolution of the one within the other, and I needed to share this inner drama with the audience, who reacted just as I had hoped. So in a strange way, we choose our own therapy. We choose to work on that which strengthens and illuminates us. Only then can we perform at our most concentrated. And indeed, only then can we be fully convincing. I remember Arthur Rubinstein saying to me many years ago, for the audience to be 100% convinced, you must be 150% so. How right he was. And conversely, have we not all had the experience of listening to concerts where it seemed that the instrument was just being played as opposed to eloquent and moving music being made. I would like to end on the strange anomaly that is the eloquence of wordless music. One of the strangest sensations I have when what we can call the oceanic feeling hovers over a performance is that of speaking clearly and without ambiguity in a language that cannot possibly be misunderstood. I felt this also as a member of the audience recently, listening to the extraordinary Budapest Festival Orchestra and Ivan Fischer playing Brahms' Fourth Symphony. I no longer heard over-familiar orchestral sounds. Rather, sentence after sentence, phrase after phrase, of fresh thoughts and comments being passed from one section of the orchestra to the other, a real conversation in great beauty, transparency of sound, and inner power. The meaning of the message was crystal clear, although wild horses could not drag out of me a simple translation into daily language. In my experience, it is often after such performances that visitors backstage will look distressed or disturbed or shaken and so movingly voice in a few words what the music has done to them. Deeply personal reactions for the most part, but occasionally choosing the very words that have flitted like birds in flight through my own being while playing. It is what proves to me more than anything other the validity of Mendelssohn's words, confusing and even provocative as they are. The thoughts which are expressed to me by music that I love are not too indefinite to be put into words, but on the contrary, too definite. It is as if Music is a head 
of any conscious thought that pushes to be expressed, as if it can effortlessly bypass even the greatest subtleties of the spoken language, its utterances having the potency of the archetypal in us. Tomorrow, I hope to have my thoughts seriously challenged by Professor Eric Clark and by one of our greatest actors, Simon Callow, who in his book, Being an Actor, describes so vividly and with such honesty his relationship to performance and the process of tapping into the power behind a great interpretation. Is it interpretation or is it identification? I hope you will join us together with Dr. Jason Staniak as we discuss this further. And may I suggest that if you have any questions, you bring them tomorrow. They will all be very welcome. Thank you. <laughs>